Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Beverly C. Tomek, author of Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania. Professor Tomek is currently the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monroe Community College. Professor Tomek specializes in early U.S. history, especially the early Republic and antebellum periods. Thematically, her fields of study include anti-slavery and social reform from colonial times to the present. Her courses include things such as the Long Civil Rights Movement and the U.S. History Survey courses. She is co-editor of the Pennsylvania History Association history study series in conjunction with Temple University Press and is on board of the Journal of the Early Republic, the Journal of the Society for Historians in the Early Republic. She also has served as book review editor and associate editor at Pennsylvania History, a journal of mid-Atlantic studies and on board of the Pennsylvania Historical Association and on boards of several HNET list serves, including Pennsylvania Pennsylvania, and H. American Studies. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Tomek. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Yes. So let's talk about your wonderful book, Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. So it's the first uh, to really kind of give an overview of both slavery and abolition in Pennsylvania in one place. And um, there's been quite a bit done on Pennsylvania abolition, especially the early phase of it, because, you know, Pennsylvania is known as the pioneer, so to speak, with the first um, abolition law. There's not really that much in terms of slavery out there. So the slavery part was the hardest part to research. Um, Fewer sources, and it's it's a harder subject matter. It's, It's always happier to talk about, you know, the good guys who tried to make things better versus the bad situation that they're trying to deal with. But um, I feel like having it in one place was useful. It, it really wasn't my idea to put both into one volume. That was when um, the Pennsylvania Historical Association approached me years ago. It took me far too long to finish, but um, wanting me to do a synthesis. So it was their idea to put them together. And at first I kind of freaked out a little bit because I know the volumes were only supposed to be roughly a hundred pages. And I thought, you want me to talk about all of that in a hundred pages? Wow. But I survived and I feel like we came to a happy medium covering it. And so um, one thing that made it tricky besides having slavery and abolition in one volume is that Pennsylvania anti-slavery was extremely complex and complicated and it includes several different phases so all of those had to be included and covered well so for example it includes the first significant movement for gradual abolition but it also had one of the strongest chapters of the American Colonization Society, which was dedicated to African recolonization. And that is an anti-slavery movement in Pennsylvania. It's racist, but it's also anti-slavery. So that had to be addressed in all its complexity. And then there's been this sort of assumption in some circles that the immediate abolition movement, the one that starts in 1830, 
was really a, a New England thing and it kind of leaves Pennsylvania. But one thing I hope people take from the book is that that's not entirely true because it was a strong movement in Pennsylvania too. So you end up with three competing movements at the same time, you know, overlapping in many different ways. So all of those things had to be teased out in the book. So going into it, I knew that I had to cover all of that and stay as close to 100 pages as I could to stay along what they wanted in the series. And so um, basically what I produced was, or what they asked me to produce, was a synthesis of works on the topic, but to also include my own new analysis. So that's another challenge. But the goal became, as I did my research and started planning out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to convey it, my main goal became to show the integral role of slavery in building Pennsylvania and the Mid-Atlantic, as well as the centrality of Black Americans in the anti-slavery struggle, not just in the 1830s, which normally, you know, from the 1830s on is when um, we've often talked about Black Americans leading the movement. And I wanted to show that, no, this was from the very beginning that Black Americans led that movement. So to do that, I took a chronological approach. So I started with the beginning of slavery and the slave trade in the state before I then progressed through the realities of daily life under slavery and enslavement. And then I explored the early anti-slavery movement, the growth of anti-slavery within and then beyond the Society of Friends or what we call the Quakers, and then through what I've long referred to as the first reconstruction. I started talking about the first reconstruction way back when I was working on my first book because the way I see it is once slavery ended in the state, it still existed in much of the rest of the country. And in that state, they then had to try to make room for people. In other words, how do you rebuild society? So to me, that's always been its own era of reconstruction. It's just way before what we often think of as national reconstruction after the Civil War. So I wanted to kind of make that point and explain that in there too. And so after I discussed that era, and the backlash that occurred in reaction to the anti-slavery movement, I then went on to cover the spread of anti-slavery beyond the Quakers and beyond Pennsylvania. And in doing that, I addressed the emergence and growth of African recolonization as a national movement and as a local chapter, and then the development of immediate abolition, which began in Pennsylvania, even though Garrison uh, William Lloyd Garrison from New England is the main figure we associate with it. When he wanted to put a group together, he came to Pennsylvania to do it. So I wanted to make sure that was in there. And um, so then in describing the immediate abolition movement, I addressed all these complexities, the complexities and ambiguities throughout Pennsylvania. And I especially tried to share this unique situation of Pennsylvania because it had such a strong role in all three of those movements. So the gradualists that we talk about with the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, we often think of them as colonial revolutionary era and kind of going away in the early 1800s in terms of their, their main power. We know the group on paper existed into, I believe it uh, was, actually it still exists as a group, but we often see their heyday, if you will, 
as being over by 1830. So I'm trying to show that's not the case. They're still there, but they're also competing with that strong recolonization group that lasts longer than we had traditionally thought. And then, of course, the immediatists. So there, there's interplay within and among those groups and then with those groups and the broader society. So I tried to tease all of that out. And then I concluded by discussing the Civil War and national emancipation and what that means for post, post-war Reconstruction, not just in the South, right? That post-war Reconstruction also affects Pennsylvania and much of the North. So I tried to kind of highlight how that's actually, in Pennsylvania, a second Reconstruction because they already had a failed Reconstruction. And that's kind of where I tie it in and, and, and cut it off. I want to say you had a formidable task, given that <laughs> you only had 100 pages to do this, and you accomplished it magnificently, I want to say. Um, oh, thank you. You did an excellent job of being able to synthesize all of the different movements, tie them together, and as you said, you know, show how what the Civil War and Reconstruction looked like localized in Pennsylvania. So I definitely want to commend you on being able to do that in 100 pages that was in and of itself there that was a challenge that's that's not easy for someone to do but also you were able to do it in such a way that not only is for academia but also for non-academics as well to be able to look at this and read this and understand it um well thank you I did cheat a little. I mean, I'm, I, you may notice I'm over by a little bit, but they made me cut a lot in the end, but I got away with 25 extra pages. Yes, you did excellent. I just want to say that. Now, you mentioned with sources. Of course, we all know that wonderful cachet that talks about the abolition, but slavery, how limiting were those sources as you reference? Or were we talking... Oh, they were. Um, so I went to the state archives and got some stuff there. And then uh, fortunately, friends within the PHA and throughout Pennsylvania knew what I was working on. And so I had friends in different um, regional archives and they would send me notes when they got new stuff. And so I got I had to piecemeal stuff together out of area archives and the state archives. And I ended up relying a good bit too on advertisements for like runaway people who had run away from slavery. So I was able to kind of construct um, little vignettes to try to make people real because these are humans. And the best way to do that ended up being on those slave advertisements. And it was through those that I was able to tell a little bit about individual humans and what they were going through. So it took some digging on the slavery part. That would make sense just because of the limited sources that do exist because of the enslaved population. You know, you have those wonderful slave narratives that everyone loves to use, but, you know, the actual getting into beyond that, it's much harder to trace those figures oftentimes. And those runaway ads, they are a great resource to use for that. It made people real. When you started reading, even though it's not their words, it's people describing them. For example, um, one was a, a lady named Phoebe. I say lady. She, In our world today, she'd be considered a girl, right? A teenager, roughly. But um, in describing her, they described 
some uh, features on her face. It, it was scarring. Well, I did some research and I learned that was probably from her home group before she was kidnapped and brought to the new world. And so I was able to go from there. So I started trying to think if I'm her, you know, how do I feel? I'm in a strange place. The people who love me enough to try to show that I was part of their group and, you know, help me look like part of the group. And they're gone because I've been kidnapped from them. Now I'm here. These people are strange. They're mean, maybe, or maybe they think they're nice, but it's still pretty darn mean to try to own me and control me. So I want to be away. So I would run away. So I tried to imagine what it would feel like to be her. So I tried to go with what the words are on the paper and how people are describing her and seeing her, but then try to get past that and think about what things really meant, what she really would have been feeling, where she might really have come from based on the different markings that they were describing. Another one was Cuff Dick's. He he was an interesting guy because I found several ads where he he would escape. They would catch him. He would escape again. And I think and I, I conjecture in the book because I have no absolute proof. But I really think where he ended, because there are no more ads after, is I think he ended up joining the Revolutionary War in one of the, the units. So he was determined he was going to be free and, and steal his life back from the people who stole him, they did stuff to him though, right? They put a collar that tried to, it was supposed to make it harder to escape. They maimed him. They pierced his ear in this way that it's meant to kind of catch up where he can't escape as easily, but he kept going. So I really kind of felt like to the best that I could, I felt like I got to know these people that are just trying to find their own freedom. Right. And he was persistent. I mean, he, oh, he was. <laughs> no matter what they did, it was like, I am not giving up. I want my freedom. That is what I want. Yep. And what's most interesting, and one of the things you set out to do is talk about, because there's this concept in everyone's minds of where slavery is, where it occurred, and that it didn't really happen per se in Pennsylvania. There's this kind of yeah. this mythical ideology that you're in, not quite the north, but you're close to it. So it's really not that integral to the landscape, to the economy. But you set out to show a different version of that. Can you speak a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. And that was one of my original draws to Pennsylvania history way back in grad school is like, you know, that that's fun. You can write about the good guys. You can talk about the abolitionists. And but then you have to ask yourself, right? Huh? If they're abolitionists, what are they abolishing? And then you realize, oh no. And the Quakers, they're fascinating. And there are some great humans who were Quakers, but you know, one of the myths that I kind of tackle here is most Quakers owned human beings. And Slavery was supported widely in the Quaker faith for a long time. It took a very loud, very what some of their friends and neighbors would call obnoxious group of, of outspoken Quakers to even make change there. And one thing I really hope that people will take away from this book is that slavery benefited the region in three ways. And first, there was the trade in human beings. Philadelphia, New York, 
they're getting money gangbusters because they're selling humans. That's where money's coming in. So they're important ports and wealth is being generated like mad. So that's just the first step, though, because first, you know, there is the trade. Secondly, there's the benefit of having the unpaid labor of the human beings that they're selling because that generated products that then generated even more money. So there's your second way that the region is benefiting from enslavement or from slavery. And then third, there's the collateral industries that develop all of this on the backs of enslaved humans. Those collateral industries are like shipping and shipbuilding. Those grow big because at first, right, it's humans that are the cargo, humans that are the products being sold, if you will. So that generated even more money. So this whole region and so much of the wealth of that region came directly at the cost of human beings who got nothing for it and to this day have nothing for it. And what's interesting, you also talk about how there would be, in some instances, where they would turn to enslaved labor over indentured servitude, more so. Yes. And and the thing is, at first, there were people who kind of, people meaning um, the landowners or, you know, the, the, um, the ones needing the labor, kind of preferred indentured servants at first. It was easier. But then... There were too many problems, right? Indentured servants, first of all, the minute there's a war, like, you know, uh, any of these little colonial wars, they can go fight and you lose your labor because now they're off fighting. You've also got uh, the issue of if they're indentured servants, they're going to be free. So you've trained them and worked with them and now they're free. And generally they have contracts that protect them. And then in many cases, once they gain their freedom, you have to give them something, nothing, nothing near what you should have been paying them, mind you. But still, you have to give them something to go take into their freedom. And obviously, when you enslave humans and, and claim to own them, you don't have any of those challenges. So that grew and it grows or slavery over indentured uh, servitude grows every time there's one of these little colonial conflicts because you've just lost your labor. So now you get enslaved laborers and then it just becomes easier to grow that stream of labor than more indentured servants. Right. And so you have this shift over to more of an enslaved population um, during this time. In terms of that enslaved population, what were their experiences like in Pennsylvania? They're very complex and different depending on um, what, where they live and what they're employed in, if you will. So there's quite a few working in the iron foundries and there's some sort of, um, it's not gang, gang labor like we think of, you know, in the South, for example. So there there are more of task oriented work. So in some cases there's a little more freedom on the you know in the evenings or to make a little money on the side and and there's that. But the bigger difference or I say the biggest difference in many ways is living conditions because often at least early on too 
black and white people lived in the same houses, right? It wasn't like there were slave quarters like we picture in the South. And that actually, funny enough, is one of the reasons it's so easy to forget there's slavery in Pennsylvania or much of the North because people, for whatever reason, and that's something we can talk about or question later, but go down into the South and tour these massive plantations. And that is its own uh, real reminder, right, that slavery existed there. That doesn't happen in Pennsylvania because there's no such thing because the actual physical landscape was not altered because of living arrangements. So that was one thing that, that, and that does foster in some ways more of a closeness than you might expect in the South, but that wasn't the case in all cases. Um, You don't always feel closer just because you live in closer quarters. And I'm absolutely not saying it was milder or not as bad because I really personally don't like that argument at all because not being free is horrible under every possible circumstance. And working, and they worked hard, even in Pennsylvania, the people in the iron area or in general, working hard every day and getting nothing for it. That's that's terrible. So um, it had its own unique features, but at the very core base, it's hard work for nothing in return. But having said that, um, and this is something I talk about in my classes, and that is human nature is it matters. So if any of us were enslaved tomorrow, what would we do? Well, what we would do is try to make every day that we can make it the best we can and survive. That's what most of us would do. And that's what most people did. So as they made their day by day way, they ended up creating communities. So to be enslaved in, let's say, Philadelphia is quite different than to be enslaved in a rural area, right? So you've got neighbors and you can go on the weekend and and have a little time and kind of forge your own communities. And that starts to happen. So that happens fairly early. And so you get people that are from very different societies. Yeah, maybe all the same continent, but still very different worlds, speak different languages, have different customs, but they come together and they create a more of a shared culture and a a bit of unity because that's how you get by day to day. You try to find your friends, you try to find other people to make life just better. And so they did that. Of course, that leads to resistance and backlash from um, not just slave owners, but white Americans who see that and and start to fear any level of independence they may see among the black community. So you get attempts to kind of restrict the community building and and the, the fun days they have. So it's a constant a constant, I would argue, battle to claim any piece of it as your own. But they did, and they didn't stop. And that's what I think is amazing. I agree. They were determined to carve out their own space of African-American culture. They were willing to create those families and social networks Um, even in odds that were stacked against them, or even as more restrictions were put in place, there was still that push and pull 
and they would find other ways um, to create that level of community. Now, what about the role of gender? Because, you know, you can really see it. And this is something that you see more so, especially as you mentioned, as you're looking about and thinking about slavery in the South, because you do have those plantations and you do have this need for more laborers. So enslaved women became laborers and reproducers of laborers. Is there something that similar phenomenon that's going on in Pennsylvania or how did gender impact um, the enslaved population in this area? Oh yeah. Gender is, it's crucial all over. Um, Basically for women, you're, you're enslaved in the domestic space most commonly. So you're doing all of these, I mean, let's, you know, domestic, often it's almost acted like, oh, it's not so bad. It's domestic work. It's hard work as a woman, even in this easier day and age, it's horrible, but they were having to work in the domestic space. And I mean, think about it to work in the domestic space, to, to do what this family that claims they own you needs done. And then suppose you have a family. I can't even imagine the guilt you would feel because you're doing all this labor to make their life the way they're, you know, they're determined it should be. And meanwhile, you kind of neglect your own, so to speak, your own family. So it's, I would argue, it has even deeper challenges in a lot of ways to be a woman in this space. And this is urban and rural. Enslaved women are, you know, they're doing the washing, the ironing, they're tending children, even at the, you know, even if sometimes they're having to kind of neglect their own children, they're tending these other children, they're serving meals, they're doing all the clothing. Sometimes they could go to town and, and, you know, take the buggy and cart and, and have a little bit of, of town time. But basically I would argue that they're in a more vulnerable position too. Cause we often talk about, you know, the taboo subject of things like rape in the South. Well, I didn't, I'm not saying I found a lot of widespread specific cases of that in the North, but you know, it happened under slavery. So it had to be happening in Pennsylvania as well. And they're under near constant scrutiny. So maybe, yeah, someone says here, take this into town. So you get an hour to yourself. That's an hour out of a whole week. So the scrutiny is constant and the labor is often just like today seen as less than the kind of labor that the men are doing so but they also find their way and by find their way I mean find their way to make a little space for themselves in this world and they do interesting things like in their free time I'm thinking of the pepper pot stew that they would make and sell right Um, so they're working to contribute to their own family as they can as well so I think these women are just so incredibly brave I agree. And for listeners who may not understand, there's this, so take your mind off of this idea of having, especially I can give you one example, and you can speak a little bit about this, um, Professor Tomei, this idea of what doing laundry is like. Yes, we have the convenience of a washing machine and dryer now, but if you go back into the 18th, 19th century, it is nothing like that. Nothing like that no. at all. 
that is a task that is backbreaking labor to do. With your hands in lye, which hurts. Yes. And yes. the water burns, and it's most of it today we couldn't even imagine. Just what a load of laundry would entail. And that's just and one cooking, task. Cooking, there's no supermarket, right? Cooking is hard. You can't go get the prepackaged stuff and throw it in the microwave. No. And these were all tasks that enslaved women were required to do. Not just one. It wasn't an either or. This was the daily mantra of what they needed to accomplish throughout the day. And this is just for their owners. This is not their own families that they yes. also had to take care of as well. And what really, I, I don't know why I think about it so much, but I, maybe it's because I'm a mom. But one thing that just really sticks in my head is doing all this work for this other family and they've got plenty. So you get the good ingredients, you're making the good food, and then you go home and what can you provide? I can't even imagine the pain that came with that. I know. That's a tough one. And then, you know, you think about, as we, as you said a few moments ago, what is home and where is that home space? Because yeah. originally you didn't have those slave quarters. You know, you may be going off to that little room that's on the side over there, a little space for you and your family. That's, you know, it's very, very different. And that's just something you really, and you're right, it does in many ways because you don't have that separate physical building or structure, there's that erasure of almost slavery in Pennsylvania because you just yep. you don't really, you can't really physically just like mentally conceptualize that um, and the harsh daily realities that the enslaved population faced and the challenges that they actually overcame and were able to carve out their own space in what were odds that were stacked against them and zero privacy yes nothing in the world really yours no matter how hard you've worked for it you know someone can come take it and it's as a mom the, the worst part someone could take your child tomorrow and what are you going to do now that begs the question i want to ask you did you see a lot of that occurring in pennsylvania the separation of children from their original families or was that something that was not as important per se for them it, it wasn't like virginia when they start selling humans down south because the land right. is less productive in there but um i did see examples of it as a means of keeping people in line and i'm thinking and i and I know this family's still around. This is nothing against them as people today, but I mean, it's the example. There was a Chu family that um, had households in different places and, you know, one in the city, one or two in the country. And I saw strategic moving of, you know, mom from children, husband from wife to keep people in line. I'm not saying it had the level of, well, I mean, I can't say, right? I'm not that mom, but it on paper, it didn't look like the level of, I guess you would say, emotional torture of the internal slave trade and how, you know, people would be sold away. But there was still that I'm in charge, I can do what I want, and I'm going to move you around for now. So you better behave kind of thing. Right. 
there's an always other that's there that, okay, we have a method to keep you under our control. And yes. as you say, as the mom, the best and easiest way, it's families, it's spouse um, to use as that method of control um, to ensure that you comply um, and that you yeah, I can't imagine anything stronger than do what I say because I got your baby over here. I mean, right. Exactly. That is. Now, how do we go from we have this thriving and I would say in many ways it is a thriving um, and slaved society in Pennsylvania. How do we start to get to that? the rise and growth of that anti-slavery movement that comes in Pennsylvania? Well, the interesting thing to me, we often talk about how the later abolition movement, the one that starts in the 1830s, it really comes about because Black Americans are very vocal and they get a few white allies and it goes from there. That starts right here. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, The runaways I'm talking about, right? a small group of whites in the colonies, often people who don't themselves own human beings, sometimes people who have claimed to own humans and now feel bad about it, start to think, uh-oh, this is bad. So you get that sympathetic strain. I hate to say it, though, you also get a very racist thing that starts to develop. And um, basically, it's fear. So you get the good, the sort of good guy, if you will, person who says, this is wrong and I want to fight for the right thing and I'm going to try to help. And I'll tell you about some of them. But I do want to kind of point out, um, we often talk about the Germantown petition and how it's the first document that really kind of calls for an end to slavery. I included it in, in the book so people can look at it. I even have an image of it. If you read it closely, yeah, okay, they're doing a good thing in in calling out against slavery, but read it closely. A lot of that's focused on our neighbors have brought in people that we're scared of, and they're abusing people, and the people are going to rise up, and when they rise up, they might come get us too and stop doing that. So is that anti-slavery? Yes. Is there a selfish kind of bad element there? Yes. So all these kind of strains converge, and for all these reasons, more and more white colonists start to speak up. And right before the revolution, a group of people form the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. They get together and form it, but then it's like, okay, we formed now, the the war started, so we got to go deal with that. So it kind of goes on hiatus, and then after the war, they'll come back. But um. Most of the people that do that, that go to that meeting and that then fight against slavery are Quakers for a variety of reasons. They're not all, but most of them are. And so they start with a number of ways to speak out against enslavement. And at first, even the Quaker establishments like, go sit down. You're, you're causing trouble. Stop. But some of them get pretty loud. And my favorite is uh, Benjamin Lay. That guy is, he's hes crazy in a good way. So um, one thing he does is 
speaking of kidnapped children and knowing how it feels to be separated, he briefly kidnaps a slave owner's child and, you know, kind of says, look, that you see how that felt? That's how it feels when you, you buy people and, and sell them away from their loved ones. He also, he's a Quaker, so, you know, they're very anti-violence, anti-military. Well, he gets a sword and he takes a Bible and he hollows it out and he takes a bladder and he puts this red berry juice in it, goes into meeting where, if you know much about Quakers, they're very quiet, dignified kind of meeting, goes in there, makes some pronouncement against slavery, stabs the Bible with the sword, which that alone is a pretty big image, and then the red juice squirts out. So he's pretty rare. He's, he's I won't say absolutely unique, but he's the loudest, most what some of his peers would call obnoxious of them. There are other examples of people um, in the ranks who start to say, you know what, I can't make you all stop owning people, but I'm not going to have anything to do with the goods that you produce. So, you know, yeah, sugar may be delicious, but you're making human beings do all that work on that. So I'm not going to buy it. I'll buy, you know, beet sugar, some of the other things they experimented with. So that's called free produce. And that's really not necessarily that they were naive enough to think not buying the goods would end enslavement, but they were kind of keeping their souls clean of the taint of, you know, owning humans. So that was another tactic. Some people just among the Quakers who had, you know, come to oppose slavery would just go visit their neighbors and just try to talk to them and tell them, look, this is wrong. This is bad. So there are so many different tactics, but these all start to grow. They start to grow when those Quakers start to pay attention to the enslaved people around them and free blacks around them because there is an early group of freed blacks and they're of course saying, Hey, slavery's wrong. Can we talk about this? Let's not do this. So their influence leads to more and more white Americans listening and that starts to grow. And little by little, um, the Quaker faith will eventually reach the point where they pronounce slavery a bad thing. And then they even get to the point of um, disownment, but that comes much later. So it's a very, it's why it's called gradual, partly. It's a gradual process. And I would stress that this early movement with um, these early anti-slavery leaders, most of them are saying slavery needs to end, not necessarily tomorrow, but it does need to end. So we need to prepare enslaved people for freedom. So that's why it's gradual. It's not a notion that it's so wrong, it better end tomorrow. But it is a notion that it's wrong. But it's just also very patriarchal. It's this idea that we need to make sure we show the people who have been in slavery how to be like us before we can free them. We have to educate them and, you know, prepare them for society. So, hey, it's a first start, right? Right. And we get to that wonderful gradual and as they say, gradual abolition law of 1780, which it was a gradual process. As you say, you need to learn how to be free. It's not just instantaneous freedom. But there was also some response. You said that fear was beginning also to 
begin to thrive among the white population because if they're free, what exactly happens to us and how are we all going to coexist? So what was the response to this idea of, even though it wasn't immediate, this gradual um, abolition law? How did some whites respond to that law? Yeah, so... I would say the majority kind of realized once it passed, okay, it's coming. Now, I've got some issues here. Number one, I'm going to lose money. So how do I mitigate this loss? Number two, and and that's it's also class-based in the concerns they have, right? So if I'm upper class and I own people, I'm worried about making sure I get every last dollar out of their labor before they can be free. If I'm working class, I'm not very happy because I'm like, huh, there's only yay many jobs and we're already competing and we have people coming from Europe. And so there's more competition. And now once people become free, there's going to be even more competition. So that's the second thing that people were thinking about. And then there's always the universal Oh my gosh, people are going to, and and it depends on the decade, what word they use, but intermix, right? So there's that kind of fear. Oh my gosh, you know, someone's going to marry my daughter or what have you. So some people were very resistant. And from the beginning, even within the legislature, right after the session that passed that law, the next session, a group of, um, I hate to use this word so generally, but it applies like a more conservative group gets elected and they become stronger within the legislature. So they think they're going to overturn the law because they're like, you know, it just passed in this last session. We're going to get rid of it now. Once again, black Americans stepped up and said, whoa. And there's some beautiful things that are written by black Americans at the time saying, basically, we we've done nothing but work. We we've done, you know great work here. We were very grateful when the law passed. We're building our lives here. Why would you come take that? And I quote pretty extensively one of those pieces because it's a person making a very strong and very reasoned and calm and rational argument. Hey, you gave us our freedom and now you're talking about taking it away. That's, that's more cruel than never having given it or, and I hate the term given, never having allowed it, if you will. So the P, the PAS, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, is made up of a lot of lawyers by this point. They get together with black Americans and they say, what do we do? How do we fight? And they get together. They get with some of the other legislators and they manage to prevent this rollback. But that's there from the beginning, taking it back. So that's within the legal realm. Now then, you know, out on the streets, you get fairly early on, you get resistance. It's not as physical right at first, but by the 1830s up into through the 1830s, it's going to get increasingly physical. And and what I'm talking about is um, harassment on the streets. James Fortin, one of the richest men in America by that point, is a black man. And so he faces the added resentment of here's a black man with a lot of money who has properties and, you know, is the landlord to poor whites. So he's there are several cases where he's harassed, his children are harassed um, throughout 
Pennsylvania and the middle colonies, there's just um, growing tension, if you will. And that will really kind of take off starting around 1832. And there will be that founding convention for the next group of abolitionists, the immediatists in Philadelphia. And they go there knowing this could get nasty and this could get dangerous. In fact, so much so that many of the gradualists with the uh, PAS, Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the lawyers, don't even go to that convention because they know it's inviting danger. As the tension grows, more and more groups of whites, people who oppose slavery but aren't sure what to do, start to do things like consider the merits of African recolonization. And even the um, abolition society crew, the, the gradualists, start to look at it as a group. The PAS starts to kind of look at it and says, huh, is this a solution? If things are only going to go increasingly violent, is this something we should be looking at? So that has its heyday where uh, people really start to look at it. The PAS ultimately says, no, this isn't, this isn't the way to go. We are scared and worried that black Americans are going to be targeted and, and maltreated, but we're not willing to embrace the idea of sending people who've never been to Africa, quote, back to Africa. So um, that's out there floating around. Some of the immediatists in other parts of the world, like William Lloyd Garrison, they want to get loud and be very vocal about the immediate movement. But immediatists in Pennsylvania, especially Philadelphia, would say, look, I agree that slavery should end immediately, but let's do this in a way that's maybe not seen as, as confrontational because we're already facing this backlash from this early Reconstruction. And we don't want to, you know, just go out there and pick a fight and turn everybody off. We want to win converts. So then there emerges this sort of tension or struggle over tactics within the immediate movement. And as that's working itself out in um, Philadelphia, gradualists and immediatists, so the PAS and then, well, most of them are all somehow affiliated with the PAS, but other abolitionists, black and white, get together and they raise a lot of money for their time. I want to say it was around $45,000, which doesn't sound like that much right now, but this is the late 1830s. And they build this beautiful convention hall, Pennsylvania Hall. And it's up five days before it's burned to the ground. Ironically, it was the first building in, in Philly to have gas piped into the building. And that worked out very well for the arsons and vandals who attacked it. But the reason I'm sharing that is it shows kind of the complexity of what ends up going on. So you get people who want to end slavery, but in growth of that community, you also get the growing resistance against not at this point, they're talking about ending slavery nationally because they've already ended slavery in Pennsylvania. They've held off those who are trying to take that back, but they're also trying to build a new society where black and white can live and work and be together. So all of these things are in this, this sort of stew of emotions and it gets, it gets really intense. And I, one thing I tell students that I think they don't realize, because keep in mind, I've mostly taught in the South is there is just as much racism in Philly or in the North, in Pennsylvania at this moment, proportionally, as in the South. 
And people don't get that. They think, oh, North, no racism. No. It's one of the mythologies about the North, that you, just like there was no slavery. Um, yeah. So you, there is a lot of myth- mythology that surrounds just the whole region. And you're right. There, there's, And you've kind of debunked those with the idea, yes, there was slavery in Pennsylvania. There was actually substantial slavery in Pennsylvania. Yes, the whole abolition movement, it was a very complex process. Um, there's push and pull between the two factions. Yes, it's coming, but there is pushback against that. And yes, lo and behold, there is racism that were actually in the North as well, too. And you're right. It is, you know, for most, that's shocking because there's just this idea that's been, you know, perpetuated that it was a colorblind society in the North. Um And And the irony is the anti-slavery racists, right? So when colonization gains popularity, you get multiple groups of people there too. You get the ones who really, they really think they're acting in a way that is for the betterment of others, right? They, They just really think society will never, American society will never accept black Americans. So they think recolonization is the way to go. They're wrong. But they're coming with a certain set of intentions. But then you also get, to any extent that these three movements, um, gradualism, colonization, and and immediatism, are growing among the general John Q. citizen population, it's colonization. And that's, yes, it's anti-slavery. People are starting to see, okay, slavery is bad, but this is not an altruistic anti-slavery. This is a yeah, we want to end slavery so we don't have black neighbors kind of slavery. And that's the one of the three movements that gets the most um, sort of white grassroots support. So that's something students really have a hard time wrapping their head around. Wait, you can be racist and anti-slavery. Yes, absolutely you can. And sadly, far too many who ever come around to being anti-slavery only do it through that racist avenue. And that's that's something that blows people's minds. Right. And it's hard for Jim just to reconcile that the two actually can go hand in hand, Um, Yep. (laughs) especially during this time period, because, you know, there's this once again that these ideas that when you think about what anti-slavery, what the abolition movement meant and the figures that were there, those are the ones. But, yeah, there were many levels, many levels, as you show. And it's also very, very complex, you know, as to how all of this worked itself out during this time. And as you say, you can be one, but you also at the same time can be the other as well. Um, And I think it's just harder, especially for students to wrap their minds around that concept, or even just the general public to wrap their mind around that concept. Um, Yep. Now, once you have abolition occurring in Pennsylvania, there were, as you discuss, barriers that were put in place to keep African-Americans from becoming full citizens during that time. Can you speak a little bit about that? There was just like, okay, yes, you're going to be free, but there are certain limitations as to what you can and cannot do. Oh, yeah. There's always this, and I hate this phrase, but you see it popping up, you know. There was always this effort to keep people, quote, in their place. And 
it happens socially. There's this almost obsession with the idea that too much freedom is going to lead to what they would call intermixture. Um, you also get, while there's still, um, I guess the trick is there's still slavery in the South too. So free black people in Pennsylvania start to um, kind of create aid societies. They want to help people. And what happens is more and more black Americans who escape enslavement in the South start to head up to Pennsylvania. And, you know, it's what we later will call the Underground Railroad. It starts fairly early. There's all kinds of myths surrounding it, but it did exist. As, as that population grows, though, the white resentment grows because they're resenting the growing black population around them and, you know, more and more tension occurs. So then they start to even further curtail the rights of free blacks. And there's a, a lot of examples, but the one that that I think that really kind of sticks out right now as we're talking is um, the vote. Now, at the very beginning, there was nothing that said free black people like uh, James Fortin, who was very rich, couldn't vote. If you had certain property, whatever, you're technically eligible because it doesn't address race in, in the state constitution, right? Well, by it's 1837 is when it passes. So it starts, you know, mid 1830s. There's all this discussion about expanding the vote for white men. And it's at that moment that they take the liberty, ironically, of putting um, putting race into the equation in a formal way. And they take away the vote for black men. And that passes in 1837 because they have a new state constitution that comes about. So even rights that people start out with initially upon freedom start to get taken away. There are um, laws against the, speaking of their obsession with intermarriage, as they would call it. There are laws against that. Um, there are all kinds of ways that they apprentice black children. So that's not slavery, but it's pretty awful that someone can take your child and they're going to apprentice them. And what compounds that is even white allies, like some of the PAS, they think they're helping by apprenticing black children. Oh, I'm just going to train your children, right? I'm going to help you fit into society. So between formal, awful efforts to take away rights and patriarchal efforts to tell you what you need, it's still, it maintains challenges all the way through. And then to speak of it, um, complexities, once people start becoming free under the abolition law, there are um, all kinds of clauses that keep their children in a semi-freedom. So there's slavery in Pennsylvania almost to the Civil War because of all this residual. Well, you were born at a certain date, but, you know, you had a child and, and I had to help care for the child or to fund their upbringing. So now you owe me this. I mean, every little loophole. So freedom is, I would say, qualified. It's limited. Right. And that's something that they have to struggle and push back against. So how, in terms of all these limitations and barriers that are being set up against the African-American population, what impact does that have on the abolition movement 
the larger abolition movement and what role did African Americans play in this? How did they respond to all of these limitations as they are being put in place? Oh, they they kept going. They you've got to admire the determination because there's you know, you put up a new barrier, I'm going to fight a new way. So uh, James Fortin is one of them who consistently, he writes, he tries to appeal to the general public, also to leaders and legislators. And in doing that, he also writes and, you know, sends out pamphlets into the world and he gains more and more allies. That's how William Lloyd Garrison kind of becomes this iconic figure right? So probably most of us in studying U.S. history were told about William Lloyd Garrison. But very unfortunately, not as many people were taught about James Fortin and how were it not for James Fortin. A, Garrison would have remained in support of African colonization. And B, he never would have had the money to found the Liberator, which becomes the main national anti-slavery newspaper. So, um, the key there is black men like Fortin getting allies like Garrison and then collecting money, helping keeping these publications floating and growing and using that to spread the word. Then you get significant involvement by women. Women are doing a lot to forward the abolition movement. One of my favorite things they did is they had fairs every year around Christmas time where they would make cool stuff and some of their stuff was so cool and they would be selling it in their fairs that people who didn't care about slavery, didn't care about abolition, wanted to go buy the cool stuff. So they'd get them in there, they'd be buying the cool stuff. And while they're there, they would be talking and they would be sharing publications. And some of the items they were selling had significance in terms of abolition in ways that got people to think. And these are people that normally wouldn't have cared. Now they're getting the message. I'm not saying they all, you know, converted and bought in, but what emerges is this massive grassroots movement and women are fundamental to it. Black Americans are the bedrock of it. And there's growing support from white Americans who, first of all, most of them start out as colonizationists, but they start to listen to black Americans and say, wait, this is wrong. Colonization is not the way to go. We should be creating a society with room for everyone. So that then is not just about ending slavery. It is about ending slavery, but then it also becomes about civil rights. And so that's what really differentiates the the uh, 1830s phase from the earlier anti-slavery movement is that they're they're braver in terms of talking about rights and pushing for rights beyond ending enslavement right they've they have much more strongly been able to vocalize the ways in which they want to enact change and they are pushing for it but not just in their local communities anymore they're willing also as you note they're going outside of pennsylvania now 
they're going onto that national scene as well. Yes, and that also starts, you know, right after the revolution among the Quakers. They're the first to really start doing it. They'll start going and um, visiting, you know, they visit Quakers in Delaware, and then they visit Quakers in North Carolina, and, and they start to really spread among their group. And then from there, they start to spread it to state legislatures. Hey, let's talk about this, you know, and um, I think it's Warner Mifflin who just starts to annoy the heck out of some of these legislators in the area, but he doesn't stop, keeps talking. And they keep bringing truth and talking about, you know, presenting facts and little by little, they gain traction. So that starts early on and it also has some strong roots within Quakerism, but by the 1830s, it's gone beyond. It's gone to all kinds of groups. It's not just a Quaker thing. It's more of a reform thing, a non-denominational reform thing. So it goes beyond the borders of which it starts, both literally in terms of state and figuratively in terms of the people being reached. And then from there, word gets out. So, you know, um, like-minded people hear about what's going on and they'll reach out and there's all kinds of letters in the uh, PAS papers where someone will say, all right, I want to help, but you know, I, I'm in Delaware, I'm wherever, what do I do? So networks start to form and these networks are black and white together, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. It was at that part, you're starting to see, you know, this interracial coalition, that is yes. beginning to develop, which is also, as you mentioned earlier, um, and the burning down of Pennsylvania Hall, yeah. the, the amalgamation that was occurring at yep. that site. Uh, and it's tied to this idea of these interracial friendships that, and interracial partnerships that are beginning to develop by some, the fear of what that meant. Yes. And one thing that's always kind of, it, it's tragic, but the actual, the moment, the incident kind of, um, it's almost funny, this one particular thing that happens at Pennsylvania Hall. So um, there's a couple and they are both by every prescriptive standard of the time, black, you know, the whole one drop thing, right? But the man doesn't look black. He looks white. And so this rumor spreads, look, you know, it's people, um, it's interracial couples, blah, blah, blah. It was a black couple. It was James Fortin's daughter and her husband. Mm -hmm. And so that spreads. And um, this obsession on the one hand with this idea of mixing, but then on the other, it is a bigger concern of, well, for lack of a better term, bigots. Bigots need to keep people othering each other, right? And so as they see taking any kind of sexual nature out of it, and you just think of it as friendship, as they see friendships starting to form across these racial lines, they're, they're becoming incensed by it. Why? Because that's how you make real change is people really start to know each other. But the beauty is people are really starting to know each other. And as they do, more and more people are getting on board of understanding we're all human and trying to make a change. But as that increases, so does the resistance by people who don't want that to happen. Right. And, and when... then it, it gets so crazy 
that they start to spread a rumor that there's an abol- there's a interracial wedding taking place. The wedding that took place was among two white people. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that fear. There's that fear. Yeah. What can happen? Yep. What can happen? Um, as you see these groups actually starting to have closer contact, then what is the world going to come to at that point? Um, life as we know it will be completely destroyed. Um, yep. And it, you know, it was at that fear manifested itself in the burning and destruction of a building that, you know, had just been put into place. Um, and and by see- every account was probably the most beautiful building in the city. I mean, the detail they put into this, it was amazing. I go, um, I don't know if you're very familiar with Philadelphia, but it was right where WHYY is right now. So I've gone there a few times and just stood there and trying to envision this gigantic, awesome. And it wasn't just like a big room for conventions, right? It had a first floor with the newspaper office for the anti-slavery newspaper, all kinds of free produce shops. So if you wanted to buy goods, like if you were avoiding cotton, because that's tied to enslavement. And so you were buying other kind of clothing. They had shops there. Um, you know, you want candy for your kids, but you're not going to use sugar. They had that kind of candy. So they had these shops there. They had meeting rooms. These were headquarters for places. And then there was another floor to it with a big meeting room. So, you know, a, a smaller convention could meet there and others did it just within the five days. But the top floor but they, they kept calling it the Grand Saloon. It had this beautiful sunflower looking thing on the roof. And the way it was built, somehow it drafted the air up to get fresh air flowing. And that turned out to be ironic. But they thought of everything. And this, this place was amazing. And they were sharing it with the community. So if you had a different kind of convention you wanted to to hold, as long as they weren't using it, you could use the building. It would have been it would have been something to have for Philadelphia. And yeah, they burned it. I know. And if you, you know, and I'm sure you've seen kind of the paintings and the images of what that looked like, you know, yeah. and it's, it's something that it's like, wow, you know, just all of this sparked, as you say, by rumors of what was yeah. happening and this fear that was going through society at that time as change is happening. The fear took over. Yep. And the cartoon. There are cartoons that um drawn by anti abolitionists of the, you know, the opening of Pennsylvania Hall. And if you get a chance, I don't remember if I included it in this book. I have it in the Pennsylvania Hall book. But um it's just it, it's just mind blowing looking at it. They've got so, you know, their obsession with men and women, I get it. It's they're they're wrong. I see what they're saying. But they've got parts of the image where they've got little kids, black and white, holding hands because that's supposed to be so awful, right? And it just blows my mind. But it, yeah, permeated every part of their brains, this fear. And, you know, fear leads to anger. So there's fear, there's anger, there's hatefulness. Right. I wish, and it culminated. I wish that sounded so foreign. It sounds like today kind of, doesn't it? In many ways, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, it's it's so, but it didn't stop. And, you know, there's there's kept 
the reformers, they kept pushing forward, even in the midst of all of that fear and all of that anger that was directed at them. They kept going. And you mentioned in your book, you know, there's this idea that once you get past the that's another one of those mythologies that just seems to surround us, especially about Northern society, is that once you get past the end of slavery, that that's it. That's kind of like the cutoff. It's all done. You know, society is great. We are all living peacefully together. There is nothing left that we need to do. All work has been done. It's, it's over. But you, once again, dispel that myth as well, because you're talking about how this goes into the 1860s and 70s as well. Yeah, because at that point, think about it. At that point, the abolitionists have two big jobs because one, yeah, their state has ended slavery, but the rest of the country hasn't in, up into the Civil War. So they push and push and push. They spread their movement. They finally get, well, another myth, right? The war starts. Is the war about slavery? From day one, the war is about slavery in the South because, speaking of rumors, Southerners, whether they own humans or not, are absolutely sure that, you know, abolitionists have taken over and Lincoln's going to come. He's an abolitionist. He's going to take away our property. So it is about slavery from the perspective of the South from day one, but it is not about slavery from the perspective of the North from day one, right? To the union, it's about maintaining the union. So you've got black Americans and their white abolitionist allies thinking, wait a minute. And there's a meeting that I kind of refer to near the end where the abolitionists of the state get together and they're like, okay, a lot of us are pacifists. How do we feel about this? There's going to be a war. Some of them are going, oh, war bad. But some, even some of the pacifist ones from the past are like, but this could be used to our advantage for the cause. But then you get some skeptics saying, yeah, right. Like this president's going to do anything or, you know, like this government's going to do anything to change it. And then you get those who say, Let's make them. And that's largely black Americans, again, with the more radical white allies with them. They're like, let's make them. Let's make it happen. Because you've had a group by that point who have started to say the only way this is going to end is in violence. Well, now violence has erupted. And that violence began not by abolitionists, but by the South. But how might we take that and make it work? So um, the effort to, to make that war shift goals towards freedom that starts right away and it takes a while, but you get um, people going to the white house, people talking to Lincoln. One of my favorite, I call him a Pennsylvanian because he spent most of his life there, even though he was born in West Virginia, Martin Delaney. He's one of the ones that's like, okay, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to convince this president. So he goes to the president and he says, listen, This John Brown thing that kind of didn't really work. There's some merit to the general idea, though, of heading south, gathering people that are now free, getting them to help your cause, Mr. President, your cause of saving the union. We can help you win this war, but you've got to arm us. You've got to give us a role. You've got to 
make this about freedom and I can get you so many people to help make this happen. So he becomes the first commissioned black officer and it, this is near the end of the war. So he doesn't go, you know, do anything grand on the battlefield. But the point is he, among several others, including Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, convinced the president, bring it in, talk emancipation. So the war is not going so well for the union and Lincoln's kind of listening. Now, Lincoln still believes in his heart of hearts that America is so racist that the end will have to come with some kind of colonization, not necessarily to Africa, but somewhere safer. But even so, and that is a fault he maintains to the end, but even so, he's thinking, he's trying to find a solution and he's listening to the abolitionists. And so he creates the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, the cynical side of me does want to point out and be honest and say that there is one other factor that helps push for that Emancipation Proclamation, and that is the fact that England, which has become a great anti-slavery nation by this point, or so they think, is getting real desperate for that cotton from the South, and they're starting to think, huh, maybe, just maybe, we ought to just enter this war. So Lincoln, between talking to Black Americans, talking to abolitionists, knowing that um, he could have extra help from those groups, and then you throw in that added threat of help for the South from England, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation that keeps England out of the war because they can't be seen as fighting to uphold slavery. It gives him an opening to allow Black soldiers and proportionally, black men volunteered for this war way out of proportion to white men. There were, so in other words, you know, in terms of sheer numbers, there aren't as many black soldiers as white, but in terms of proportion to population, it's amazing the numbers that volunteer. It also allows him to, instead of returning people who had escaped in the South and come for, um, you know, come and offered assistance to the troops in the to the Union troops, instead of returning them as, quote, contraband, he now can include them as Union soldiers. So that's a big one. So that was that was the turning point of the war. But it came about because black Americans and their abolitionist allies forced the president's hand. And of course, England was a little bit helpful unintentionally. But that that's big. So now that happens. The war ends. Slavery is over. Now what? And I can only imagine being someone like Martin Delaney. Now, Martin Delaney at first, very optimistic because he's got it in his mind. Okay, the war's over. We won. Now all we got to do is help remake the South. Right. But we saw earlier in the book how easy that was to remake Pennsylvania, which it wasn't. So it's it's kind of like, you know, here we go again. But they tried and they stayed. They um, built schools, served as teachers. James Fortin's granddaughter goes south to teach in the schools. Charlotte, and Fortin. they just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> Even in you know what is an environment that was saying we don't want you here, and yep. <laughs> we're saying we're going to change, but not really. Um, we just have to find a different way of doing what we've always done. Um, yeah. They persevered. You know, they, you know, they had a goal and they had a mission and they really 
sought out to enact change in society for the betterment. To me, that just took so much guts, so much bravery. It did. I mean, in the face of the the overwhelming challenges, not to say just, not to mention physical intimidation of the period, because to be an abolitionist, you know, there's this idea, oh, yes, we're an abolitionist. But to actually say that you were one, just were one, your life was in physical danger. Um, oh, my this God. this is not yeah, just I mean, in the South. Not just in the South. Oh, this is in the North. Yeah. This is in the North. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite stories, this was a bit before the war, but it illustrates this point, was um, John Greenleaf Whittier, the poet. So he's an abolitionist and... So John Q. Citizen considers, you know, Whittier an, a rabble rouser, and he's traveling around up there giving speeches, and he gets to this pub. He's hungry. He stops to eat, but there's a group chasing him. They, you know, God knows what they are planning to do to him, but they're chasing him, and they come in there, and, and they start talking about this this cheeky fellow they're looking for, and he kind of finishes his meal and gets up and you know, he kind of engages him. Oh, so what? what's he done kind of thing? Talks to him. So he gets in the stagecoach and he kind of leans out as he's leaving. And he's, he's like, I'm the cheeky fella. <laughs> and they pelt him with eggs and he keeps that coat forever with the egg on it. But he knew he was going to be murdered. He could have been, you know. Right. I mean, it was dangerous just in order to be, as we say, an abolitionist. That was a dangerous endeavor. And, you know, it's something that's often taken for granted because you're involved in this movement. You know, you're standing up and you're saying, but it depends. Even as we say in the North, you're not, you know, shouting this from the rooftop all the time, especially depending on where you're going, because it's a very, very contentious term and label for that time, because there are so many ideas and as we were speaking about a few moments ago, that fear of what that meant to change to society lied at the root of that fear. And to be a black abolitionist, that just doubled your danger. Yes. And and um, here's if anyone out there listening is um, a grad student looking for a topic, I, I'll softball you one here. Um, Here's what something I really think uh, would be a great study, and that is this um, role of martyrdom, because among particularly Garrison and some of his closest followers, they almost seem enamored of the idea of becoming a martyr. But um, at key moments when they could have, and, and this is my one contention with Garrison, I just kind of want to go back in history and just pinch him about this a little bit, but he would stir something up and get all excited in the moment, and then he would escape and leave the local black community to suffer the consequences. And I'm thinking about Pennsylvania Hall, because that, that was one of them. They deliberately did not invite him to talk, but he shows up and takes the stage and talks and has his say. And he's being rushed out of town in the Fortin's carriage. Keep in mind, people already resent that the Fortin's have a carriage. They know good well that's the Fortin carriage. And he's being ushered out and saved by the Fortin family and taunting people as they leave. Well, then meanwhile, the crowd circles town and is going to, you know, attack the Fortin's. So 
I'm just intrigued by this because martyrdom is something that some of them seem to want, but the ones most in danger who aren't courting it, but are more likely to get slammed by it are the black abolitionists. Right. It's a fascinating kind of thing going on there. Right. And then, you know, there's that very um, complex relationship that you have with someone who you, whether or not he can be described as a martyr or more as an antagonist, you know, his, there's differing opinions on whether or not he helped or hurt the abolition movement, John Brown. I mean, yes. it's kind of just, you know, he's that very controversial figure that you just can't really wrap around because so much is there. Um, yeah. But he at he least was, had the guts to follow through with being the martyr, right? Yes, <laughs> like, that's what I was going to say. He's willing to <laughs> die for what he believed in. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting, just the whole narrative of and how complicated these issues were during that time it's not you know and by no means um listeners are saying that it's simple it's very complex and there are many layers as to what you know this pennsylvania society national society was facing at the time and the conversations that were taking place as to how to grapple and deal with these issues during that time and you know, it's something that, you know, especially as you just think about Pennsylvania alone, which you always consider this, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, I think for many, it's hard to wrap their minds around because of what you think. You know, it's one of those, if you just look at Philadelphia alone, it's one of those Seminole cities where you have like Boston, where you have that free African-American population that grows there, that thrives, as you say, by the 1830s and 40s, they're heading onto the national scene. But to get there, it took a lot to get there. Yeah. And even after getting there, the the challenges they continued to face, right? Right. Um, the, the movement after the war, and if anyone hasn't read it yet, um, I'm drawing a blank on the author, but there's a biography of Octavius Cato that's very interesting. So he goes on. He continues to fight for civil rights. So everything that um, anyone who, when you think of civil rights, you think of the 20th century movement, all the things that they do in the 20th century movement, it actually happens first, right after the Civil War or even during or actually up towards in the North. And I'm thinking of, for example, the struggle to be able to ride on the, the what do you call them, cable cars or the cars in, in town. You know what I'm talking I'm drawing a blank on the name. Yes, the little, trolley cars. Trolley little... cars, thank you. Yes. So the struggle to be allowed to ride on those. And then when you can ride on them, but you have to stand on the platform and get the mud splashed on you and all that. So the ri- the struggle to be able to ride inside and sit where you want. I mean, that's where this heads right after. So he's helping with stuff like that. He's teaching, he's doing great work and he's murdered. So it never gets safe. It never gets easy. No, it does not. So professor Tomek, what would you want readers to take away from the book? Well, there are many things. There's many. There are several. (laughs) Um, 
One thing I do want to point out, and again, for the finer points of how to make this work or, or where to go from here, I'm thinking they might want to consult Ta-Nehisi Coates or someone, but I want them to take away the reality that all that work that created what, despite it all, I would still call, I still call the greatest city in the world, Philadelphia, but not just Philadelphia, the whole region was done by people who never got anything for it. And I know I hear the argument all the time. Well, I didn't do it. You know, I never benefited. Uh, People are still benefiting from work done by people who didn't benefit. And people who are very wealthy in that region right now, good for them. But that wealth that they continue to have stemmed right here from the work of people who who's um, not ancestors, but offspring, you know, progeny, I guess you will, have nothing to show for it. So am I saying, you know, redistribute the wealth? I'm no politician. I wouldn't know how, but something, there should at least be broader acknowledgement. Yes, something should be done to right some of these wrongs. So that's one thing. Another thing is freedom was never given. Freedom was fought for. And the leaders in that fight were black Americans. So I think that's important that we always remember that. But here's a big one, too. We think of slavery as uh, wealth and the money that was generated, and that is part of it. But I would say there was something even more insidious that grew of it, and that's American racism. And that, too, has not been resolved. Not only has it not been resolved, If you follow the Southern Poverty Law Center, it's very opposite of being resolved since around 2008. um, Race hate has grown throughout this country and it continues to. And that's that's throughout the country, not just in the South. And so we need to keep in mind that they did great work in the past and they made important strides and they were so brave. and They did so much. And it's our turn to pick it up and keep going. It's our turn to not stop until the changes are real and until they're permanent. And that's a long way away. So we should be teaching our children how to make a difference. We should be doing everything we can to finally win this fight. Professor Tumek, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Readers, I implore you, please go out and pick up a copy of Slavery and Abolition in Pennsylvania to learn more about Pennsylvania's very complex history, and not only local history, but also national history. And as Professor Tumak said, they did it in the past. We can do it again, and we can learn so much from them. And I want to say this is a book for academics, undergrads, grad students, but it's also for non-academics as well. So please go out and pick up a copy. Thank you.